0: Justin, do you think it would be funny if we tried to read the quotes in an English accent? Oh my
1: God, no. (laughs)
0: Would Jimmy be mad? I don't know. Hello, (laughs) people. (laughs) (laughs) This is the extra... No, that's that's actually Australian. I don't know. I can't do it.
1: (laughs) Hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I am Justin Phillips.
0: And I'm Solejo.
1: So this is part two... Of the episode that we have going with Jimmy Famarewa, the restaurant critic at the Evening Standard.
2: There's a lot of people sneaking through under the cover of, oh, we're all in it together and we've had a really tough time. And there are like huge businesses that are kind of making moves and, you know, expanding. If
1: you haven't heard part one, stop right now. Go listen to part one. This is part two.
0: In this part of the interview, we talk about the differences between UK and US restaurant critics over over there they're just like a lot meaner, I guess. Like, is that fair to say?
1: I think it's very fair. They are they are definitely more harsh.
0: But I think for some context, we should maybe read some quotes. So here's one from Jay Rayner's review of Le Cinq in Paris for the Guardian, and he wrote this in 2017. <laughs> The dining room, deep in the hotel, is a broad space of high ceilings and coving, with thick carpets to muffle the screens. It is decorated in various shades of taupe, biscuit, and fuck you. It shouts money, much as football fans shout at the ref.
1: It's funny, but it's definitely heavy-handed, for sure.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's very much, uh, it's entertaining. I think it's... There you go. And I, I it is a lot more fun to write a takedown, I get it. Um, and... He also penned a column about how American critics are a lot more serious and a lot more earnest about our work than the UK, which is funnier and more entertaining and and more of a spectacle. And uh, certainly, I understand what he what he means. But I'm also just like I'm earnest. I don't know. Yeah. I I like I like this writing though. Do you have another piece of his that you like?
1: So yes, I do have a quote that I want to read from the same writer. It's about this Belgian restaurant that's in London that uh, specializes in serving mussels. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna give you a taste of what he said about them. And finally, the mussels. They needed to be good. Being a mussel restaurant that can't do good mussels is like being a cardinal who's crap at praying or a slaughterman who can't stand the sight of blood. This restaurant is all these things and far less. The meat inside the shells is small and shriveled and dry. Each shell contains what looks like the retracted scrotum of a hairless cat.
0: I just how many how, how many cat testicles has he looked at in his life? I wonder. Right,
1: and, and, and at some point though, with stuff like this, you probably make yourself laugh. Oh, absolutely! While this. He has so much like, if fun. If I if I put that in the piece. That would make you happy as a writer. If you could get joy out of stuff like that, I could imagine the job being fantastic. Making yourself laugh like that? Oh, man. So
0: now that you know the big differences between the UK and the US as far as restaurant writing, here's the rest of our interview with Jimmy. I I would love to hear you... Talk more about the presumed tone of restaurant criticism in the uk mm. because i think yes yeah. there's been a lot of discussion about it online but yeah, not necessarily yeah. on this podcast yeah. so i bet the listeners would be so oh, interested yeah. <laughs> right right yeah
2: um yeah so i guess there's this long-standing thing that obviously in the us uh, versus the uk uh simply put restaurant critics in the uk will generally only go one, which I know is just like unthinkable, like in the tradition of um, restaurant writing in the US. Um, And I guess the other thing is a bit more of an intangible um, feeling that whereas the tradition of US restaurant criticism is more, here's what you should eat. This is, here is quite a kind of clear-eyed view of what this place is like and thoroughly fact-checked and things like that. Whereas the the um, I think it's been, you know, called like a sort of, you know it's a bit more like a kind of scabrous kind of blood sport in the UK where people try to uh, try to get off the best sort of, you know uh the best sort of uh what's the word, the best bars, I think in the best kind of like one-line, damning one-liners of places and stuff. And I think there has been this feeling that certainly in pre-pandemic times, before there was this kind of critical ceasefire that like everyone's adopted, that it was kind of about like who can be most outrageously um, unkind about a restaurant that they haven't liked. And it kind of was this... um, this very funny, but quite, you know, acerbic and quite sort of free form that, you know, you didn't spend that much time on the actual, what you ordered and what you ate. It's much more about, it's more sort of like a personality column with a sprinkling of food rather than a rigorous look at, yeah, what this restaurant is like. And I suppose the obvious retort to that, and this is the position that I've always taken is, that those two things are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> and the hope, uh, you know, the best restaurant criticism on both sides of the Atlantic all around the world, like, has all of those things, has both of those things, doesn't it? And that's kind of what makes it. But yeah, that is the generally held belief, isn't it? And I guess when you get into the assumed uh, reader, uh, and there are a lot of people that are very um great on the specific tradition of this stuff and how it Comes directly from the likes of like Craig Claiborne and um, the the types of the uh, the the avatar that the original restaurant critics were that they were kind of the representative of this kind of you know moneyed class that were white and were going into this kind of urban environment and picking out different cultures and different cuisines to eat or whatever and so yeah I guess the other big thing is to what degree do you explain things? What is the shorthand? What is the, what do you th- kind of put things in parentheses or like brackets or, you know, like when you're kind of talking about specific cuisines and different languages and different eating cultures, you know, who is this, who is it for? And it's, and it's interesting. I think it's, we go back to, the interactions I have with people that, you know, other black people that have seen me on TV in the context of a critic and I, I can almost imagine them calling family members into the room like you won't believe there's a, a black critic on TV because I, I would do the same um, they point out to me as well like you know i've had at least two conversations or two or three conversations where they're like you know whose taste like whose frame of reference we're talking about and i these are the these are these are you know well-established things that um there have been some great really valuable conversations that have happened in the last two or three years and i I do think that whether through kind of fear of fear of like twitter reprisals or people just like subtly getting the message i feel like the situation is better in terms of people are a lot more mindful of this stuff and like you know i you know i i'm by no means and and you must know this as well so like obviously when you are uh, from a minority um then there's this feeling that like, oh yeah, like you kind of like, but like, you know, you're going on a journey into other cultures as well. And you're kind of trying to learn and hold yourself to account and trying to be better and, you know, think about, oh, okay, how would I do that? And who, who is this that I'm aiming for? At what point, what's the sweet spot between making sure as many people as possible understand this and yeah, kind of speaking to a presumed white uh, audience?
0: Right. Yeah. There's this assumption, I think, that because of the way you and I look, right, we come with a specific set of politics and a specific yeah, set of yeah. ethics where we yeah, are very yeah. different people. We're not
2: yeah, necessarily
0: yeah, yeah. like um, like people of color whisperers. Right. You yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <We> can't speak <laughs> to yeah, yeah, everyone yeah. or for everyone. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I'm so curious about how you navigate just like your own personal sort of rules for yourself as you go out, how do you, um, you know, because again, I'm sure you and I have differences too. And I think people shouldn't presume that we have the same sorts of processes. But
2: having said that, and I guess this is is kind of like, not a recent revelation, but this is kind of like the arc of where I'm at with it now. I, I completely get that and it's strange, isn't it? Like, you know, this is another long-standing thing and I, I, I've written about it a little bit, but, you know, being, only getting asked, like I'm going to speak to my experience and being black and like suddenly only ever getting asked to interview other black people. <laughs> it's like <laughs> the weirdest thing ever. But then... It goes both ways because I think, oh my god, I would really like to interview that black person, and I can have, <laughs> and I can, and I can have a conversation with them about these things that they've gone through in a in a way that a writer that didn't have that lived experience couldn't. Like, do you know what I mean? And I kind of, and I feel that sometimes. Um, but yeah, what I was going to say was, um, in terms of, yeah, in terms of sort of how I how I navigate it. Basically, there's something to be said. It's not great to feel like, oh, you're only called upon to speak upon things that relate to you, you know, your heritage or your, your ancestry or people of your race or class or or sexual orientation or whatever it may be. So I'm sure that you know, and I know, like you know, like you know, like gay writer friends that have had a similar thing happen to them. And so it's not great, but there is also something to be said for like, unless you make those points or you know you make that connection or you know if I'm on MasterChef or something and I say oh this reminds me of you know this thing that's related to Nigerian cuisine or whatever no one else is gonna say that like you know I mean like there's kind of there's something to be said for for kind of leaning into those things when they feel natural like so not stopping yourself but also having a great sort of breadth of foods that you're covering and things that you're writing about and things that you're talking about. Like we all just want the freedom to, to kind of to talk about it all and cover it all in a way. But, but with that, within that, I am very aware that if you don't talk about that stuff, like no one else is going to, you know, no one else is going to mention it because I, I, I feel like we've all felt that, haven't we? Like you watch mm-hmm. something on TV or you're reading something and you're like, oh my God, they're going to mention this, aren't they? Or you're reading an interview with like a, with an actor or an artist and you'll be like, oh my God, they're going to ask this, they're going to follow up with this and they don't. And it's like, you're not always going to get it right. Um, if you have that that shared history with someone or that shared kind of, um uh shared sort of culture or heritage, you're not always going to get it right, but I think, it's nice to be able to sort of trust those instincts and and kind of give that voice to, uh, to people wherever you can.
1: I, I kind of love that in this conversation, there's three people of color and we're all talking about how we understand in food media coverage mm. that slim necessity of tokenization. Right. Mm. Because we're mm. the first in a lot of spaces. <laughs> you know, yeah. we know that we're going to be picked up on to yeah. write about a perspective that the editor assumes that we have, which is probably yeah. accurate. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. You, you kind of have to do that to open yeah. the door for people behind you. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm sure you've gone through this a lot. But like, at what point does it go from that tokenization that we're aware of? At what point does mm. it go? Does it go from? You know, I know this is ne- a necessity. To mm. all right, I'm tired of this. Or does or does yeah. it ever does it it's ever hard shift? To,
2: yeah, it's yeah. hard to, I guess it's hard to measure. I guess, um, and I'm sure Justin, you must have had to make a lot of these calls. Like in the past year, like obviously, you know, post George mm-hmm. Floyd and last mm-hmm. summer, and mm-hmm. it was all, you know, it was like every other request was kind of linked to it in some mm-hmm. way. And I guess you. And I, you know, I guess you just sort of have to make those judgment calls. And I think actually this is where you say, you joke, we're having this conversation. And I think that that sometimes when you are a person of color and you're in these media spaces, you can't always get together and have these kind of conversations right. and sort of compare notes in this way like you sort of can feel sometimes a little kind of siloed off as this kind of representative and obviously you can you've got social media and you've got friends and family and and you know friends that are the same race as you or whatever but they're not going to get the specific nuances of kind of oh oh they've asked me to do this oh okay Mm -hmm. do you think you could write that oh yeah i don't know i kind of already written that piece already like and it i mean it's it's quite a good foot in the door i'd like to write more for this publication and oh they're offering me this to do and it's kind of Mm -hmm. these are these are you know they're, they're they're difficult things to navigate and difficult conversations to have and so i think one of the things that yeah throughout this year like just it sounds ridiculous, but yeah, fostering these like communities and like wherever you can find them and people that are that are able to to sort of that that have that shared experience of oh okay, I see what they're trying to do. Why don't you do this and like kind of and it can be and it can be really useful sometimes. Like if you're being bombarded with stuff, you're being asked stuff, and things are being teased in a certain direction. Oh, could you make it a little bit more like this? And, right. and yeah. it's really great to have to have those people, but yeah, I, I know what you mean, because there is a, it can feel like there is, there is a value to it as well. And it goes back to what I was saying about sometimes feeling like you you sort of have to choose or do some kind of calculus between like your own, I think you, you wanna kind of do a role or job or work that is fulfilling for you and that works with your life but then if you're in if you've been given this platform and you're in this position like that is rare for somebody like you to be in then you kind of feel like you need to make that decision like it's not just it's not just on you like kind of you but but that feels to me actually you know saying it out loud that that's that's kind of too much pressure for someone to be on but I guess you know <laughs> we're kind of we're kind of used to that <laughs> pressure aren't we because right. we literally grew up with it and so it's kind of like yeah, I feel like there's some strange, I don't know, there's some strange thing where, yeah, if you are a person of colour in this world that you've got that sense of, I don't know, like you kind of, I, I need to do this for more than just me or you kind of have that, I don't, I don't know.
0: You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. You can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by subscribing to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com slash pod.
1: This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you.
0: I'm Soleil Ho, and we're back with Jimmy Wewa, the restaurant critic at the Evening Standard.
1: All right. So a little while ago, you had mentioned kind of like this, uh, like a ceasefire in restaurant mm. criticism, yes. and I feel like I feel like that's something that's that I don't know if it's happening here. Soleil, you could talk about that, it's but I definitely know the tone. Here.
2: There you go. So the t- the yeah. d-
1: the tone with which we talk about restaurants during the pandemic, yes. you know, is yeah, a little yeah. bit different. You know, it's like... Yeah, completely. P- yeah. So I'd love to hear from your perspective, like how it's different over there.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I think it's quite similar. I remember I, remember, um, I read Pete Wells um, for the New York Times quite a lot. I'm a huge fan of his writing. And I remember sort of relatively early on in the pandemic, a line that really stuck with me that he wrote, which was like, Every open restaurant at the moment is a good restaurant, and he was mm. explaining his his kind of reasoning for kind of um, not not being negative uh, or not sort of um, focusing on accentuating the positives in any sort of critical appraisal. And there've there've been various versions of that piece written. Um, uh, it's kind of extreme. I've seen that a lot of people in the US critics and people that write about restaurants like took the decision that they felt like they didn't want to write about them. And I think when the situation was at its most dire, understandably, they didn't want to kind of be seen to be um, encouraging people to go out and sort of let the good times roll when everything was kind of looking um, so bleak. Um, it's, it's been much the same in in the UK. I, I can probably count on one hand in the year that this thing has been going on, the number of... Um, restaurant reviews that you could call negative stars have have pretty much disappeared from most reviews. And I kind of led by what other critics had said about it quite early on with the magazine and with the new column in the newspaper, which was, which is mostly focused on kind of takeout and the remit's been a bit broader while restaurants have been pretty much closed in the UK. Um, Yeah. And I was like, yeah, we can't have, uh, stars on there it's kind of makes no sense and it just feels crass in the circumstances as restaurants are fighting for survival and so my take on it actually particularly with the stars thing is like I i, I wonder if it's something and I kind of hope that it's something that maybe just carries on and outlasts this because really I'm not doing anything that different i am I'm kind of I'm not sort of zeroing in on the negatives or the things that haven't worked. I'm trying to sort of, you know, I'm trying to be positive wherever possible. But in terms of like something like stars, like it's, I find it, I don't know how Soleil feels about this, but I find it really, you know, people have such a different sense of what those stars mean, like sometimes. And, and I've, you know, I had like uh, restaurateurs and owners, like, it's been a glowingly positive review but you know in my eyes it was three stars and I can feel that they're annoyed that it wasn't a four and it's kind of and and I've kind of I've not hated like not having those conversations because ultimately my focus is the words and the way that I kind of argue the point and the rationale that I have where this restaurant succeeds where it doesn't succeed what makes it interesting, what makes it uninteresting, like all those things. And so I felt like the stars would quite often like pull focus in some ways. Um, I do feel that for better or worse, one of the things that people come to restaurant criticism for is not hit jobs, but like to... Like, there's, there's a real, there's, there's a sort of, a, there's a, like, pulse-pounding almost, like, effect of, like, reading somebody really effectively telling you why something is not of value, why it wasn't good, why um, why people are being had in a kind of way, like, you know, sort of... Um, and I, I do feel, like, is important, and I think that there's... I don't know when it will come back. I, I wonder if now that the vaccines are here and the rollout in the UK has been, you know, really successful thus far, and you know we're looking at we're looking at June all going to plan, like kind of mid to late June as being the point at which you know we're not in locked any sort of lockdown and social distancing and the like is 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 not needed. And I feel like. After that point, there's a lot of um, like uh, the kind of uh, the the knuckle dusters and the tools will be uh, picked up again, like with like (laughs) Gusto by like some critics, because I feel like I feel like uh, do you know what it is? I I think one of the great things about you start reading a restaurant review, and there's that there's that tension because you don't know where it's gonna go. You're kind of like, and if it's somewhere that's that's really big and hyped, and you've heard a lot about it, and there's been differing opinion, and it's it's really enthralling, and it's undeniable, and I and I think that it adds to the it adds to the excitement and the sort of and if we talk about restaurant reviews may be sort of losing their primacy during this time. I feel like that's been part of the reason maybe that there isn't that kind of shock and surprise, even though it's completely justified because, you know, restaurants are on their knees all over the world. I feel like it will come back. I've not really, I've not really minded. I've, I've you know, I've, I've felt like you sort of only really want to be tough with the places that can shoulder it in terms of whether that's kind of financially or in terms of like their reputation and how kind of, um, what it is that they're, that they're doing. Yeah. So I, I feel like it will come back relatively quickly because I get the sense that there is, I don't know among readers, but I get the sense among uh, people that write about food and write about restaurant restaurants, that there's, there's a feeling that they want some release in terms of, um, in terms of just just feeling like there is light and shade again, that that there is you know excellence to shoot for, and there is you know disaster to try to avoid, and so it's not just very amiable, pleasant middle ground where it's a kind of wartime effort when everyone's in it together and everything's fine. So, lay I don't know what do you, how do you feel about it? I feel like I could talk about this forever. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Well, when I was first starting, I got this really good advice from a veteran critic where mm. he told me, you know, when he decides, you know, whether or not to publish a bad review based on the idea of mm. like, is this restaurant going to die a natural death without me anyway? Mm. And if mm. it is, then yeah, he's yeah, not yeah. going to bother because it's just, you yeah, know, that's, that's just kicking something while it's down.
2: And yeah, I think yeah, this yeah. past
0: year, it has felt like that for every restaurant, yeah. right?
2: Yeah, yeah. Or like,
0: you can't say anything, but... The flip side is like writing positive reviews has had a material impact on so many people who might have otherwise had a hard time, right? I can think of like several restaurants in the Bay Area that have had to make the decision to, they were on the sort of ropes, right? And after Mm. being written about, they started hiring people, right? They like,
2: that's really great. They were able
0: to renew their leases and all of that stuff. And to me, that is so, I, I didn't predict that.
2: Yeah. And if you can, and if you can keep, more I mean good and bad are sort of not very helpful terms in this (laughs) world but if you can if you can keep things that are kind of like uncynical and being done in like uh, in people that are doing interesting things if you can keep those things alive through like positivity and praise like that is much better than feeling like you're the kind of most feared critic in town like I'm just not really I'm not really interested in that I think it's I think it's important to have that yeah as you say like when there are things that that people are you know saving up for and and getting babysitters and kind of you know the the toll it takes and the kind of specialness of like having a night out and we've all had that where we've we've gone somewhere and we've kind of Try to convince ourselves that it's good, and we kind of and sometimes there is a kind of catharsis in like just somebody very carefully pointed out, pointing out like why something doesn't work or why it's a kind of noble, kind of near miss or something. Like, I think that, but you're right, these are these are these are livelihoods, and and I feel like that has been thrown into sharp relief and focus by this time. Um. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, the amount of times it's something that a lot of critics say, but, you know, there are a number, there are places that you go to that, you don't write up because you you don't have a great time there or you you know it's not it's not really it's not gonna be interesting or, you know, kind of helpful to to take down somewhere that, yeah, as you say, will probably die a natural death. Yeah, I mean um, that said,
0: I am looking forward to writing my next surgical pan (laughs) whenever that is. I am very excited. I think I am
2: too, yeah. Because I think the other thing that is happening and I think this is a really important point as well. Is that uh, there's a lot of people sneaking through under the cover of "Oh, we're all in it together." And <laughs> we've had a really tough time, and there are like huge businesses that are kind of making moves and you know expanding, and you know not just restaurants, but like obviously the delivery apps and things like that. And everyone is kind of you know, yeah, sneaking under this banner of, oh, it's been tough and we're all pulling together and and it does feel at the moment that there's been a kind of flattening and like everywhere from the tiniest kind of two-person operation to an enormous kind of chain has been, oh, it's a tough time, everyone's going through it, like you can't, and I do feel like that will be that needs to be sort of that needs to uh to kind of write itself as it were in terms of I, I I sense that that is yeah there's something needs to needs to kind of straighten out there but um yeah we'll have to keep see. that on our dockets Jimmy <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah
0: so I don't want to keep you forever even though I want no, to no, no, really no um, <laughs> but Uh, can you just maybe part with some ways in which listeners can find you and your work um, if they're interested in following up?
2: Yeah, well, um, my weekly reviews, um, which for the time being are kind of generally takeout or kind of um, broad themed kind of uh, looks at different food trends around town. That can be found at standard.co.uk or I normally tweet a link And on Twitter, I'm at JimFam. On Instagram, I'm at JimFamished. And uh, I've got a podcast uh, with Waitrose, which is a retailer in the UK. That's called Life on a Plate, where we interview uh, chefs, um, writers, uh, musicians, people um, about food. Uh, And that's good fun. And those episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts on Thursdays that's on the second season now and yeah that's that's pretty much it i guess you know um yeah i'm i'm sort of working on a few other other things but mostly i'm just kind of gearing up for restaurants to get going again and getting ready to <laughs> getting ready for those takedowns so like getting ready to really <laughs> crack some heads <laughs> i do i do i do genuinely feel like there is a there is not necessarily from me but i do feel like there is some kind of um some uh, bubbling uh, kind of people that kind of like hold, have been holding on to, to um they, they need to like, release this um you know all the kind of little annoyances and grievances are going to like accumulate and like a really sort of big bloated uh, restaurant uh, is gonna is gonna come in for a hard time soon.
0: Wow, it'll be like that exploding <laughs> whale.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Guts yeah. just it's flying everywhere. Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be blubber everywhere.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure.
2: Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Justin.
1: So I imagine, Soleil, at this point, you have spent more than a year on your best behavior because the pandemic, how you write about restaurants, like it's more of a... You know, there's always like a supportive tone. You want these places to succeed, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's been a nicer environment like Jimmy talked about. And I'm curious for you. Are you just dying to be able to go run free (laughs) and attack something?
0: I'm like the chihuahua stuck in the car of like the Target parking lot. And like all the all these people are walking by and I just want to (laughs) rip into them.
1: There's a little kid tapping on the window making faces at you.
0: I mean, like the truth is, yes, I've let so many things slide over the past year and change because, you know, we weren't ready. Right. And like, of course, there's a worker shortage, really like a job uh, surplus. And there's just different standards right now for what it means to eat out and even order takeout and all of that stuff. But at the same time, I want restaurants to be better. They can be better. And let's talk about it and in constructive ways. And I cannot wait to actually do that. I have a list. I have a long list of places I want to talk about.
1: Ooh-ey.
0: Basically, if you haven't seen me write about a restaurant in the past year and a half that you think like is strange that that I wouldn't write about it, it's because I didn't like it. So like, if you <laughs> didn't see me mention a restaurant, that's because I'm being nice. Uh <laughs>
1: I can only imagine how many fist-size holes there are in the walls of your apartment over the last year. Just <laughs> legitimately just punching a hole and stuff.
0: Oh my God. Uh, well, you know, if I'm frustrated, I just uh, I just sew. I sew a little patch. Um, uh. But yeah, no, I am eager to get back into it just because, again, like let's, let's all talk about how restaurants can be better and how they can better serve us and themselves and their workers. And, I, you know, I'm just waiting. I might be the first one to do it. I'm not sure. I'm like, I'm excited. So, yes. Yes, all of that energy that you could feel between Jimmy and I about like our excitement to get back out there and, like, actually criticize, too, um, remains.
1: I can't wait to read you both. That's for damn sure.
0: And that's all we have for today. Thanks again to Jimmy famurewa for being in conversation with us. And to Erica Carlos for producing this episode. If you're enjoying Extra Spicy, please share it with a friend and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts.
1: And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening.